One uh, quick announcement, once again, regarding the uh, family that we are supporting through Bridge, the refugee family. On December the 3rd, uh, they arrive here in the States, here in Chattanooga, and the uh, women who are coordinating this are in need of a few strong men and perhaps some that aren't so strong. Um, to come help, you can move, help move furniture, help move smaller items, help move uh, in items that we've collected and that uh, Bridge has collected into the home of this family, and also to greet them at the airport. So uh, if, men, you are able and willing and, and um, interested in serving in that way, please contact uh, either Marsha uh, Gentry or contact the church and let us know, and we will make sure that you reach the right person to talk to and uh, can make plans uh, to do that. So just make note of that. Okay, turn with me this morning to 1 Chronicles chapter 29 and begin reading with verse 10. We're going to read down through verse 19. 1 Chronicles chapter 29 and begin reading with verse 10. Hear God's word. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you, and sojourners, as all of our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments your testimonies and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. God's word, let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you indeed for every good thing that you have provided. We know that all belongs to you. And so, Father, we lift our hearts to you and surrender. We lift our voices to you. We lift our minds to you now as we give ear to the reading of your word. And we pray that you would come, Holy Spirit, take the word which is spoken, apply it to our hearts, 
May it be meaningful, may it be productive, may it be transformative in each of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Title of the sermon this morning, Living Faithfully in God's World. If you are like me, you hear dozens of voices daily sending messages, usually in sound bits. Messages here, messages there. So much so that subconsciously, without even realizing it, those messages begin to influence how you view the world around you. They begin to influence how you view your time, how you view your money, how you view uh, life in general, how you view people. And so, if you're like me, what I'm about to share with you this morning as we spend a few minutes in God's Word is going to be very, perhaps sobering, countercultural in the sense that it is a message that sounds completely insane to the majority of the world that we live in, but it is truth with a capital T. It is an ancient truth, truth from the dawn of time, truth that is impressed and implanted on our very DNA as human beings. Think, for instance, how you would feel if someone told you that the sum of your life's savings you would never enjoy. What would you do if, if you were told that what you want, what you have pursued, what you long for, you'll not accomplish, but your child's generation will? In a sense, this is the context for our text that we just read. David, who's lived his entire life uh, really in pursuit of God, he's lived his life according to Scripture as a man after God's own heart. Most of us know the story of how that he stood before Goliath, the great giant, and through faith in the Lord his God, God wrought a miracle and he was able to bring the giant down to his knees and literally kill him with nothing more than one small river stone. We know how that God delivered David from the hands of Saul, the previous king. We know how that God exalted David to be the greatest king, arguably, in all of Israel. But David longed for one thing. After he became king, after the kingdom was well established under him, he longed to build a house for the Lord his God. And we see this in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 17. But he couldn't. And so we hear David towards the end of his life in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verses 7 through 10. He tells his son Solomon, he says, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. So now, we come to the place, that was in First Chronicles chapter 22, we come to the place a few chapters later in chapter 29 where David in the evening of his life is gathered before the people of the Lord and he is asking them to bring gifts to the construction of this temple that he himself had been forbidden by God to build. And he knows that in his own lifetime he will never see its construction. But he's labored, he's even 
saved, he's collected of his own possessions, of his own wealth, and he set it aside for the sake of this temple of God. And in this prayer, we are given what I believe is the greatest insight in one place in the Bible into what stewardship really is, biblical stewardship. Insight into living faithfully in God's world. Now it's sad because as soon as I mentioned stewardship, I imagine at least three quarters of you automatically thought money. Anytime we talk about stewardship, what is first and foremost in people's mind is money. And I think it is indicative. I think it's a reflection of our society, perhaps a reflection even of uh, pastors and preachers that sometimes when we talk about stewardship, it, it becomes synonymous with money. Money is important. It's part of what we are given. It's part of what we are responsible to steward. But it is by no means the only thing that we are responsible for. Stewardship, biblical stewardship, is simply the job of caring for something. So if we are to understand our relationship towards this physical world, towards the environment, towards our neighborhood, and yes, towards our money, we must examine David's prayer and find out exactly what he is teaching us. So in light of that, I want to make three points. The first is that God owns everything. In this country, we make a big deal about private property. It's one of the hallmark characteristics of living in a democratic republic. It's the belief that property is a natural result of the laborer being entitled to the produce of his labor. However, in our fallen nature, oftentimes property that which is good, and we have a tendency to do this across the board, we have a tendency, a proclivity to take that which is good and to corrupt it towards our own go or to consume it in our own pleasure. So what is intended to be compensation for work now becomes mine, something that I want, something that I need, so that the line between belonging and being becomes blurred. Now, I think we see this very clearly in Black Friday. Many people are willing, people who would never come to church at 10 a.m. are willing to go to uh, a local store at 4.30 in the morning or perhaps 5 or maybe even earlier and stand in line for something that they don't really need, but they're convinced that because they're buying it at half the price, they can't do without. Now, uh, I've made at least one purchase, I think, in my life on Black Friday, so uh, please don't think that I am being too critical, but I think it is indicative of our culture, even, even the fact that our local news media, national news coverage, uh, covered a, a stampede that happened this past Friday, um, where apparently this leopard print hoodie was something people couldn't live without. It is an indication of how we have blurred the lines between who we are and what we have. As a society, we think if we own one more thing that we will be happier. Happiness, this elusive ideal, this elusive thought, this elusive concept, which in our own consumeristic culture we have equated with something that we purchase or something that we need or something that we don't have but can obtain. And unfortunately, the commercials on TV, the commercials on Facebook, the commercials on the internet, wherever we look, where people are advertising their product, 
do not help. That is part of this bombardment of messages that come to us daily that you just can't do without this one thing I'm selling. Or you're just not going to be happy unless you own what it is I have to give. And of course, owning it always comes at a price. But according to David, private property is really a social construct that is helpful for the sake of living in a democracy or living in a society like you and I live in because it makes sure that the employer does not take advantage of the employee. But at the end of the day, it is when it comes to the eternal outlook of God, ownership is a facade. It is a misunderstanding. Indeed, it is misleading because David says that only God is the one who truly owns all things. We see this in verse 11 where David in his prayer says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Now David did not begin his prayer by saying, God, you have blessed me with all these things. Therefore, I'm bringing them to you to dedicate them to your house. Rather, he began his prayer with an acknowledgement that everything God owns, everything belongs to God. Now pause and consider for a moment what this means. The vastness of space, the grandeur of a lofty mountain stream, the serene stillness of a woodland trail, all things belong to God. The notion that God made everything is for us, or rather the notion that God uh, made everything and owns everything is, is for us often impossible to grasp because we see things from our vantage point and we believe that something exists for our good, for our consumption, for our pleasure. Now we affirm in our confession that God made all things for his own glory, right? But yet, in our lifestyle, in the way that we live, in the way that we think, often we dispute that. Often we live to the contrary. We cannot fathom. In fact, if you've ever followed some of the conversations um, revolving around whether there's life on other planets, um, even among Christian circles, the, the idea is almost unfathomable that there could be a planet that's potentially inhabitable in some far reaches of the galaxy that either we don't know about or, or if we uh, are, are made aware of it that simply had no value before we were aware of it. We have a drive within us to equate the value of something with not only our ability to know and understand it, but also its impact in our life, the contribution that it makes to us. Well, when we look at the vastness of the universe that we live in, we know that God created all things for one reason, his own pleasure, his own glory. When he created the universe, according to Genesis chapter 1 through 2, he did not wait with bated breath to day 6 until man was formed from the dust of the ground. No, the world was not made for us. It was made for God. God owns all things. God reigns over all things. David declares, both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. 
In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength. Now the humor of this reality is, is brought to bear um, when David points to the fact that he is giving God what is rightfully his to begin with. He says in verse 14, but who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly for all things come from you and of your own have we given you. In other words, David makes at least twice. It's the only concept in this prayer that he repeats that God is the only one who owns all things. When I lived in Greenville, South Carolina, I worked in municipal government and we would, as part of our duties, have monthly meetings with county councilmen and we would offer updates on projects and uh, various acquisitions that we were making in government. And without fail, there was always this one county councilman that any time we gave an update on a project, especially if it was a transportation-related project, would remind us in no uncertain terms that his tax dollars were funding that project, and, we wanted, and he wanted us to know that we were spending his money. Now, obviously, I think there's an element of truth in his statement. I think all of us as taxpayers want to know that the taxes are being put to the use that they're intended or the, the use that they are um, supposed to be. However, it's equally true that the income that this man acquired as a councilman and a business owner from which he paid taxes was generated by the very infrastructure that was being built such as roads and bridges, etc. the infrastructure that enabled him to acquire wealth but in his response, really what it represents in his innocence is the way that many of us, perhaps knowingly or unknowingly, see possessions. We do not see them as part of a system that originates and contributes to the good of the, of the community, but rather as originating and terminating with me. It's mine. I earned it. It's me. It belongs to me. David's prayer hits the very center of this notion. We are not taking what is rightfully ours and giving it to God, but rather of his own we have given to him. So the first point that is made here in the text is that God owns everything. Second, and I think this is a bit harder for all of us, Christian or non-Christian alike, to understand we are creation, not creator. David puts each of us in our place. He states in verse 15, for we are strangers before you. He's declaring to God, we are strangers before you and sojourners as all of our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. So when it comes to stewardship, even among well-meaning Christians, there's a misunderstanding of our role in creation. We're tempted to pretend that we are above creation instead of a part of it. Some have even interpreted the verse that I just read. And they've written meaningful and beautiful poems and hymns focusing on the fact that we are strangers in this world. However, that's not what David said. David said, I am a stranger before you. In other words, in comparison to the creator, he is totally other. 
He's outside of his creation. And all of us are part of his creation. So when we think of our place in this world, when we think of our place in the universe, we are part of God's creation. We cannot think, we cannot fathom, we cannot ponder anything that is outside of God's created world. Even the things that our hands make are indicative of the fact that we are made in the image of a creator God. But we cannot make anything out of nothing. Only God can. God, in the very beginning, created the heavens and the earth, and he did so out of nothing. You and I need the elements of this world in order to create anything. So we are part of creation. We are not the creator. Now, why is this important? It's important because ultimately we belong to this world. We are part of creation. We belong to God, and every day of our lives is a gift of his sovereign mercy. And the truth is, unless Christ returns, that we will eventually die, but the world will continue. So David declares, our days on earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. Everything that we know, everything that we can imagine, every hope and dream and aspiration that we can ponder up in our imagination is part of creation. And God is the creator. So, if God is the creator, if he is totally other, then how do we embrace the status as strangeness before him? For some of us, it's easier to do than others. But ultimately, we embrace the status of a stranger in his presence by holding all things lightly. All things of this earth. And yes, I'm talking about money, but I'm talking about much more. Everything, holding all things lightly. As Job said, naked came I into this world and naked shall I return thither. So whenever we think of what we take with us, ultimately our job in this span of time, whether it be 20 years, 30, 70, or 100, is to glorify God in our lives. This brings me to the third point and final point, which is how we view creation ultimately reveals our heart. David's next comment is telling for multiple reasons. He says in chapter 29, verse 17, I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. So if God owns everything, and if we are part of his creation and not the creator, knowing our rightful place, how should we relate to the world around us? Well, let's think about David. David was the youngest son of his father. And by no means was he equipped from a human vantage point to be the king, the ruler of all Israel. But yet God called him when he was still a shepherd to that very task. God called him even though he was the youngest and the smallest of his brothers. And he ordained him, he anointed him to be king over Israel. That's something that God reminded him of when he cut the Davidic covenant in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 7 through 8. He tells him, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I've cut off your enemies from before you. In other words, everything that David was able to accomplish, God did it. It's not something that David always remembered. 
because most of us are at least somewhat familiar with David's sin with Bathsheba. And when David was rebuked by God through the prophet Nathan, he said, I anointed you to be king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more, even all that you need. So even David did not fully grasp or always remember what it meant that everything belonged to God, that he was part of creation, and that ultimately everything came from the hand of God. So ultimately we relate to the world as belonging to God and relate to all things as if we are borrowing them from him. This doesn't just mean money, it means life, it means time, it means our health, it means everything that you and I can count up in life ultimately belongs to God. And we should live our lives in such a way that we acknowledge his ownership of them, that we are simply borrowers, we are not owners. In the New Testament, Christ instructs his disciples in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, what you treasure is a reflection of your heart. If we consider any part of creation truly ours, then we assign it a role that is idolatrous. Think about that for a minute. If we consider any part of creation to be truly ours in the sense that we own it, it belongs to me, then we give it a role that is idolatrous. We were made to give, and we were made to give all to God. So, if God owns everything, if we are part of creation, not the creator, and if ultimately the way that we view creation is a reflection of our heart, then what does this look like on a daily basis? Well, let me give you four areas of application. First, and some of you may be mad at me after I say this, but um, uh, the Bible requires me to. So first is the environment. I've always maintained that Christians should be some of the strongest advocates for the preservation of our environment because ultimately our natural world is the handiwork of God. And so it's, it was actually stunning for me as I read through the news this past week and I saw in one hand the article about, um, well, the escapade that happened at a local uh, retail store that attracted national news because pe the, 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 the workers literally had to get up on the table to avoid the rushing crowd. And then right next to it was a report that was issued for the sake of the federal government regarding the uh, dire condition of, of, of climate change, of, of, of um, the changes in, the, in our environment. And the conclusion of this report, or at least the article suggested, that the conclusion of the report was that we have reached the tipping point. And that ultimately, because of um, man-made uh, contaminants, that we are literally destroying our world. Now, that's a message that oftentimes the far left likes to talk about and may not be as comfortably mentioned in a church. But it should be. Because ultimately, what we see is that everything in this world belongs to God. 
And if God truly owns all things, then we have a responsibility to act not as if it belongs to me, therefore I'm going to see how I can consume it for my own momentary pleasure, but ultimately to say, how can I take that which is borrowed and glorify God with it? Now the implications of that strike at the very heart of not only how we spend our time and our money, but the very fabric of our society. But I simply present it to you because I believe that as Christians, it's something we should be talking about more often than we do. How we treat the environment says that we care whether we treat it as if it is something to be consumed or exploited or if it is something truly that God has given us the responsibility of caring for and protecting ultimately says whether we care more for our momentary comfort and pleasure or God's glory. Now. Another area of application is our relationships. How do we see people? Do we see others as simply a means to an end? Managers, those of you who are in positions of responsibility in your workplace, do you see people as resources to be consumed? Or do you see people as an image bearer of God? Every one of us are here for one purpose. That is to bring glory to God. So ultimately, how we view people determines how we treat people. And how we treat people is a reflection of whether we see them as consumable, a means to an end, someone's shoulders who can be stepped on in our own interest, in the pursuit of our own happiness, or whether we truly see them as image bearers of God. Thirdly, our time. How do we spend our time? What portion of your time is spent in self-gratifying pursuits? What do we do with our time, especially time that is considered surplus or free? Whatever we do with our free time is an indicator, ultimately, of how we relate to the world around us. It's an indicator of how we see our place in society. Much ink, and I'll not get into it today, but much ink has been spilled over the current generation of men, many of whom spend much more time in recreation than they do in self-sacrifice and laying down their lives either for their family or for some other cause. There's a lot of social scientists who speculate as to why that is, but I believe ultimately the reason is because we do not understand our place in the world. Therefore, we cannot live faithfully in the world that God has made. Fourth and final, yes, is our money. No stewardship sermon would be complete without addressing how we spend our money. But stewardship is much more than simply paying tithes, giving to the church. Stewardship is what we do with our money, period. Consider the story, for instance, of uh, the widow found in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, who gave out of her need, out of her poverty, even though it was the smallest gift in the bucket. Christ said she gave more than they all. Why? Because ultimately she gave from a heart that understood it didn't belong to her to begin with. So the quantity of our giving is not near, is not important to God, period. What is important is whether or not we give, understanding that everything belongs to Him. 
Now that being said, we do have a God-given responsibility to give tithes and offerings. But I think for many of us, we like to talk about giving what we can afford. And what we mean by that is giving what we can afford to do without. Instead of talking about our resources, our money is ultimately belonging to God. That's where stewardship begins. We like to address the symptoms instead of addressing the root cause. But if we see our place in society as being here to consume, here to absorb, here to exploit, instead of here to bring glory to God, then everything that would take from our time, from our relationships, from our money, or would, or would compete with our comfort, becomes a competitor to God. So when we think of being a stranger and a sojourner on earth, we ask ourselves, what does it mean? It means to live faithfully in God's world. It means that we are borrowers, not owners. It means that we are entrusted with a high and a spiritual calling to take whatever comes our way and ask the question, how can this glorify God? And I truly believe that if we interacted with the people in our lives from that vantage point, not asking the question, what have you done for me lately or what can you do for me, period, but rather asking the question, how can I assist you in glorifying God? Then our relationship one with another would be completely different. Our relationships with our coworkers would be different. Our relationships with our subordinates or our inferiors, the people that we manage in the workplace would be different because we would see them not as working for us, but as working for God. If we saw that our time was not our time, but it belonged to God, then we would spend it in a way, ultimately, that would bring glory to Him. And yes, if we saw, as David did, that money, resources, financial, monetary possessions were things that belonged to God to begin with, and that we were only giving Him what is rightfully His, then we would be able to give out of an attitude of gratitude instead of out of an attitude of obligation. David's prayer ends in verses 18 through 19. He makes this declaration, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. What we collect, let another spread abroad. What we build, let another tear down. What we do, let it all be done faithfully knowing that God owns all things and that we are his creation and that ultimately understanding how we relate to him and everything around us is a reflection of our heart. Let us not demand from creation, whether it be from wealth, a leopard print hoodie, or something else, what creation cannot give because our hearts were created for God. And our chief end is to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Let us pray.
Father, we thank you as those made in your image and your likeness, those whom you have created and recreated in Christ. We thank you that you own all things and that you are sovereign over all. And we pray, O oh God, that you would help us as we ponder what it means to live faithfully in God's world. Help us to see our place in it and to live each day as borrowers, not owners. To live each day bringing glory to you with what you bring to our life. May we find contentment in knowing that your glory is our chief end. And Father, give us grace. Even as we have pondered four ways of applying your, your word to our lives, give us grace in our interactions with others, in our management of time, in our management of money, and in how we care for the world we live in. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.